The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Jesus Christ, our Lord, and we're still 
first sentence. So we'll come back to verse 5 in just a moment. But I, don't, I want you to think about this. We oftentimes will just gloss over the first introduction of a book like this. And I want you to say the first few words there. Don't gloss over the introduction. Because it says, Paul, a servant of Christ. And those words are miraculous. Because Paul, as you know, you may not, may not know, I don't know if you know or not, but before he became Paul the Apostle, he, he was formerly Saul of Tarsus, and he was persecuting the church. He was a murderer of, of many Christians, many would say. And before he became a Christian, some say that Paul would walk up to 20 miles per day just persecuting the church. And it was as if God said, you seem to like walking long distances. And so then God just snatches him up and says, I'm going to set you on mission for something else. It also requires lots and lots of travel. And so he then transforms Paul miraculously down the road to Damascus. And uh, now he calls himself here a servant of Christ. That word is doulos. And he refers to himself as this servant of Christ. The fact that he can even write those words, of course, is a miracle. But it also says he is called to be an apostle, which means sent one. There's an interesting contrast with those two words, because the word servant is a word of great humility, somebody without significance, without rights, purchased by Christ. And then the word apostle is one of great authority, but that authority only comes through Christ. We've got to keep this in mind for ourselves, our walks with Christ, that, that in a sense we are called, like Paul was, but we're also sent we are called to be disciples, but we're also to be sent in the same way uh, that Paul here understands himself. He's a servant, but he's also sent to do the work of ministry. Now, why does Paul give such a long introduction? Well, he's never visited this church in Rome, so he needs to, I think, establish who he is. Like, lay out his credentials as to why he's writing this letter. Now, some, of course, may know his reputation, his previous reputation, and they may not trust him. So when you think about reading just the first few words of Romans, I want you to think about someone in our world today. Who is someone that you would be so surprised if they came to know Christ, surrendered to Christ, and then they became the world's foremost evangelist for the gospel? Like, who would that person be in your mind? That was the person for them when it came to Paul. Paul was that person for them. So if you're, if you're not yet a Christ follower, I think the conversion of Saul to Paul is, I think, huge evidence for Christianity. Like, how else do you explain uh, the conversion of Paul apart from uh, a miracle that God did in his life? The great persecutor becomes the great evangelist. And Paul says here, he says that he is set apart for the gospel of God. Now, the word gospel, we use it a lot, obviously, in the church. So what does it actually mean? Well, it's the word euangelion, which means good news. Now, what word do you see right in the middle of that word? You might see this word, angeloi, or we get the word angel from that, which means heralds of good news. So in the first century, if an emperor is on this faraway battlefield and he, he wins the battle, he would send angeloi, or heralds of good news, to go and declare victory and peace and authority to the towns that are that are in that empire. And so another way to define this would be the gospel is good news of Jesus' perfect rule, but also an invitation 
to come under that perfect rule to make him our Lord. And I think the temptation for us today, where we live, is many people might just, you know, church is still kind of part of the culture sometimes. And so people might just happen in the church, which we love that that, that happens. We love, we want people here, whether they're a follower of Christ or not, we want them in here hearing the gospel over and over again. But what can happen sometimes is people just sort of fall into church, but then never really surrender to him. And in Matthew chapter 25, verse 19, Jesus says, go and make disciples. He didn't say, go and make church attenders or go and make good moral people. But he says, go and make disciples. That's the followers. People that recognize Jesus as king and want to live under his authority and his reign as king. And so this is what Paul says he has given his life to, that God saved him miraculously with this gospel. And then now he's living on a mission and taking that gospel all over the world. And so when you look at verse 4, I love how Paul links the resurrection um, to this idea. So how do we know that Jesus is the Son of God? Paul seems to imply that the resurrection just screams out and announces that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so for, again, if you're someone that's not yet a Christ follower, I would say, you know, when you look at the Scriptures, you might think to yourself, well, you know, I, don't, I can't really believe in the miracles. I can't really believe in things like the resurrection. But here's the question I want to ask you. If Jesus, if God really came in the flesh, then shouldn't we expect him to do some God-like things? And that might look like some miracles or maybe a resurrection. And Paul seems to imply here that the resurrection just screams out that Jesus is the Son of God. It's like this announcement that, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You know, uh, many of you, some of you may know, some of you may not know, um, my wife and I, Courtney, had a chance to go on an Israel trip back in the end of May, early June. We helped lead the trip with uh, Danny and Sandy Cunningham, and it was a great trip. We really loved being there and seeing all the sights. But at the end of the trip, uh, we had a little bit of a COVID issue, and so a few of us had to stay over there um, for maybe about nine extra days. And... Uh, and uh, so, you know, it's obviously a crazy situation, and, and you're trying to figure out what to do and whatnot. And we um, got a little apartment across about a mile from our hotel, ended up staying there for a few days. And, um, you know, I missed the last part, the last day of the trip because of this whole COVID deal. And, uh, and that was the day I went and saw the garden, too. And I just thought, I can't go to Israel and not go see the garden, too. And so the last day that I was there... I decided to do a self-guided tour of the Garden Tomb. And, uh, and listen, I know there's a couple of places that, that many historians would say that may have been the place where Jesus was uh, laying for three days. Um, some say this is the place where that took place, and other people point to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre there in the old city of Jerusalem. And listen, I'm not going to try to settle that debate this morning. But um, something that really... Uh, stood out to me just being in that place and visiting the Church of the Holy Sepulchre later on that day. Um, and it's this. If Jesus truly did not resurrect, and there really was a grave where his body still was, then that place would have become a famous shrine. Because famous people get famous graves. And listen, we don't fully know which location it was, but that actually gives me confidence in the resurrection. In fact, 
tour guide emphasizes, he said, listen, whether it's this place, whether it's that place, it's highly likely it's one of the two, but both places are empty. And to me, that gives us confidence that we don't fully know where it was, that there really was a resurrection. And Paul says here that the resurrection declares Jesus as the Son of God. And the resurrection is a big deal for Paul and for us because it was the resurrected Christ who shows up to Paul on the road to Damascus and strikes him with physical blindness so that he can see spiritually. And he goes on to become one of the foremost evangelists of his day. Look with me at verse 5. And this is the rest of that first sentence. Verse 5, where it says this, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul talks about this obedience of faith, and he says we receive grace that brings about this obedience of faith. I think sometimes we we think we are saved by grace, but grow by our own efforts. Listen, our ability to to obey flows from grace. You might say it like this, we are saved by grace, and our obedience is fueled by grace. If, if we think we can take credit for our growth, then what happens when we obey? Well, it's going to lead to pride. The default mode of the human heart is works-based religion. That's why we have to preach the gospel to ourselves over and over and over again. Because our default mode, even if you've been a Christian for 20, 30, 40 years, our default mode of our heart is works-based religion. And it's why you and I have to have the gospel preached to us from Scripture, from other people, from ourselves, over and over and over again, continually. So Paul says this phrase, obedience of faith. Listen, obedience flows out of saving faith. Now, I don't want to confuse matters. Paul is not saying that there's this two-step formula to being saved. He's not saying it's faith plus works equals salvation. That would be adding works to the gospel. I like how Martin Luther says this. He says, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. So we're not, we're not saved by works, but saving faith should lead to some works, should lead to, dare I say it, some joyful obedience, not just obligatory obedience. Now, there are some people that thought that Paul was afraid to go to Rome. Now, we know, of course, Rome was, would be an intimidating place for for someone to go back then. Um, here's how Bishop Stephen Neal described it. She was the eternal city which had given them peace, the fount of law, the center of civilization, the mecca of poets, orators, and artists, while also being home to every kind of idolatrous worship. So when you think today, what, what city comes to mind, whether it's one here in the U.S., whether it's somewhere overseas, what city comes to mind where you think to yourself, that would be a really intimidating place to go and spread the gospel message. But that would have been a place, Rome, for these people back then. Now, of course, it was a place that had given them peace, Pax Romana, but at the same time, they had this mixture of thoughts about the 
this place called Rome. But now you can now you can add something else to the list that Bishop uh, Stephen Neal says here because there's a church in Rome, and Paul's writing to this church, and the fact that there's a church there in the city is also a miracle. In verse eight, it says this: First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. You can see just the affection that Paul has for these people in Rome. And he's never met them. He's not met them yet. Because Rome has this reputation, but now there's a church in Rome, and that news is spreading all over the, throughout the world. And so Paul has this strong de- desire to go. He's eager to go. He's not afraid to go to Rome. He's eager to go to Rome and encourages people. And listen, Paul is a, a church-planting beast, but the gospel somehow beats Paul to Rome. How humbling would that be? To know that with all of his experience, with all of his knowledge, that we're not even quite sure how the gospel got to Rome, how a church began there in Rome, but Paul has heard the news, and he wants to go visit these, these new Christians. Look at verse 11. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may, may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So why does Paul want to go to Rome? Well, he wants to use his gifts of preaching and pastoring to encourage these new believers in their faith. But listen, he is not just going there to teach them a thing or two. Like, you might think, well, you know, Paul, of course, is going to come visit these people, and he can easily say, you know, don't you know who I am? I am Paul, the apostle. The apostle. I am specifically selected by God to bring the gospel to all of you people there in that part of the world. You know, I am Paul. Whenever I write things, it becomes Bible. Like, you might think Paul might approach with some arrogance here, but that's not what he does here. He says, I want to come and encourage you, yes. But he also says... I want to come and be encouraged by you. And so look at the humility as Paul approaches these new Roman Christians. Because he sought encouragement from other believers. If Paul sought encouragement from other believers, how much more should you and I? I'm always blown away when Paul's writing a church and he says things like, Hey, pray for me. I want you to pray for me. I need your encouragement. I need you to encourage me. And he's not really shy about that because he knows he needs it. That's humility. I think of uh, the, the first day we found out that we had to stay over in Israel with the whole COVID situation. You know, the first thing you find out is just like, wow, this is a whole game changer. I've got to find a place to stay for the next nine days. I'm going to do this in a foreign country. And uh, you just feel kind of helpless and very vulnerable. And so my wife and I are staying with this other person that was a part of the group, too. 
there was also a little COVID situation as well, and so we were going to stay together and uh, and just sort of hunker down for a few days and, and ride the thing out. And um, and there was a guy, a, a young businessman that we had interacted with some there on the tour that, that came in and 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 was, was hung out for part of the trip anyway. And uh, and he's a 24 year old guy. He's a Christian man. And he said, listen, I want to help you guys uh, kind of navigate this. And so he says, I'm going to send my driver to your hotel. I'm thinking, you have a driver? I've never had a driver before. What's that like? And uh, he sends his driver over to our hotel to take our luggage from the hotel down to the place we're going to stay the apartment. And I said, you might have to make two trips. But that's totally fine. You're going to have them as long as you need it. Helps us load up the luggage, takes two trips of luggage to the place we're going to stay. And then he says, now we're going to go buy some groceries. And I think, well, we can figure that out. He said, listen, today is the Sabbath. Everything's closed except for the Arab market. So I'll take you to the Arab market, which I know is going to be open, and we're going to buy some groceries. And I said, he said, okay. So we get in the car, and we get out of the Arab market a few miles away. And I said, well, do these people, do they take, like, uh, U.S. money? Do they take credit cards? He says, no, they don't take that. They just take shekels. I said, I don't have any shekels. And so we go to the market, and he says, listen, it's going to be fine. So he starts he starts pulling out his own cash and ends up paying over $100 of groceries for us on this first day. And the whole time I'm thinking, like, listen, I can I, I can pay your driver. I'm trying to give his driver money. I'm, as he comes back to the apartment with the food, I said, listen, I, I can pay you back. I can pay you back for the food. And he says, listen, just, just stop with all the money talk. And then he just walked out. And I just thought, you know, it, it, that's hard for me because I don't like being served like that. Because being a served requires humility. I kind of lack humility sometimes. Letting someone just give you something just as a gift. And I kept trying to pay the guy back. And I think sometimes we struggle with that in our lives where we we want to pay somebody back or we want to even just pay, find a way to pay God back. Now, let, let me pay you. Let me pay you back. serve, but it requires humility to be served. And Paul understood that. And he's okay with being encouraged by these people. He's going there so he can be encouraged by them, not just be someone that encourages them. I think in ministry, we, we oftentimes see very distinct lines. Like, I'm the shepherd, you're the sheep. I'm the leader, you're the follower. But that's not how Paul sees it. He goes to be mutually encouraged with his church in Rome. And the encouragement in the church should be mutual. Then skip down to verse 14, where it says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, who are these barbarians he's talking about? Well, this simply means non-Greeks, non-Greek people. And you see, the Greeks saw themselves as these wise and, and cultured, sophisticated people, but everyone else is barbaric and foolish. And this is Paul's first reference to that division that we talked about in the church. So Paul says he is obligated to both groups. So obligated can also mean indebted. But Paul's never been this church, so why would he be indebted to them? Well, there's a couple ways to think about this. 
I'm going to lean out to John Stockton. He says, if I have $20 and I loan it to you, then you might be indebted to me to pay it back. That's not how Paul is using this word here. Another example might be, if I give you money and I say, hey, give this to so-and-so. Well, you're now indebted to that person until you give it to them. So I've given you something to give it to someone else, and you're now indebted to them until you give it to them. This is the way that Paul uses this word here, because God has given him the gospel, and he is now obligated and indebted to all, and you and I are under the same obligation. Because God has given us the gospel, and he's told us to give it to everyone and everywhere, we owe people the gospel. And if we owe someone something and we don't give it to them, what do we call it? We call it shortchanging or possibly cheating someone. And so may you and I never be someone who shortchanges people out of the obligation to give them the gospel in the way that Paul describes here. Then in verse 15, Paul says that he is eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Now, why did Paul need to preach the gospel to those that are already saved? Well, remember, the gospel is for those outside the church, but it's also for those inside the church. It's how we're called, but also how we grow. And so before we examine the last couple of verses here, I want to talk about just the impact that the book of Romans has had in the lives of, of two men instrumental in church history. You know, many think that, that Romans is like just this graduate, graduate level course for Christians, but it's brought many people to faith. And one of those people is Augustine. He lived from 354 to 430 AD. He is born in Algeria, North Africa, and he may have a testimony more like the prodigal son. Uh, he saw pleasure in his youth. He was slave to his passions. He was one that liked to party. Whatever they drank back then, he probably drank it. Whatever they smoked, he smoked it. And his mother, Monica, she prayed intensely for him and for his salvation. His education takes him to, to northern Italy in Milan. And, he, and while he's there, he hears a man uh, named Bishop Ambrose preach the gospel. At this point, he's 32 years old. It's summer of 386 AD. And one day, he describes, he just, he walks out into this garden just to be alone. And it was here that God began to break in. And he says in the confessions, the tumult of my heart took me out into the garden where no one could interfere with the burning struggle with myself in which I was engaged. I was twisting and turning in my chains. I threw myself down somehow under a certain fig tree. And I just let my tears flow freely. At this point in the story, he, he hears the voice of a child in the distance. And the child is saying, Pick up and read, pick up and read, pick up and read. He sees that as a sign from God. He picks up a scroll, and he decides to read the first thing he sees. He plays Bible roulette, just like you and I do. And it happens to be Romans, at the end of Romans, and he reads these verses in Romans 13, where it says, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify his desires. Now, if you're Augustine and you've been living the life that he's been living, 
and you open up this scroll to this passage. And you think God might be trying to say something? Just a little message for you, and that's what he thinks this is. And so after reading these verses, this is what he writes. I neither wish nor needed to read further. And once with the last words of the sentence, it was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart. All the shadows of doubt were dispelled. So for Augustine, he had what we might call a breakthrough. And he surrenders his life to Jesus. My wife, many years ago, shared with me that um, she has a story kind of like Augustine and, and kind of walked away from Christ for a while before he brought her back. And she says, you know, it was for some reason I just picked up Romans. I don't know why I picked it up. And I would read it and feel convicted and then just slide it under my bed and try to ignore it, ignore it for a while. And so God has used these words to reach many people for himself. And so we heard a story like Augustine. Now let's talk about Martin Luther because he lived 1483 to 1546. His past was opposite that of Augustine. The year was 1515, and Luther was brought up to believe in the fear of God and, and death and judgment and hell and all those things. And he'd been a monk for about 10 years. He was a very disciplined monk. He actually wrote one time, I was a good monk. If ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. I picked that because I just wanted to say the word monkery to you today. But as a monk, he was not a happy monk. He was depressed. He was not joyful. He was appointed a professor of Bible at Wittenberg University. And first he dives into the Psalms, and he starts diving into Romans, teaching through the book of Romans with his students. And during this time, he's extremely angry with God. Because God seemed more like a, a terrifying judge than, than, than a merciful Savior to him. And that never changed until he studied Romans chapter 1. He experienced this spiritual breakthrough, just like Augustine. And he described it like this. I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became, became to me a gateway into heaven. And it was this realization that started the Protestant Reformation. So what passage was it that changed in those verses 16 and 17 of Romans 1, where it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, some have called these two verses, the linchpin of the whole book of Romans. And the rest of Romans is simply just an unpacking of these two verses. So how did these impact Luther? Well, there's this one big idea, the righteousness of God. At first, Luther saw the righteousness of God as just being angry about sin. 
just being wrathful against sin. That's all he saw God's righteousness as. But then these few words here help them realize the righteousness of God is also that God justifies us through faith and through his grace and his mercy. And he began to see that truth as he read these words in, in verse 17. So what does righteousness mean? Well, it's a positional word. It's a legal word, meaning to have good or right standing with someone, to have no debts that you owe that person. We might call this forgiveness or wiping the slate clean. Whenever we think of, of, of coming to know Christ, we often think of, you know, God forgives you, He wipes the slate clean, and that is true. But the other part of the good news is that He credits us with His perfect righteousness. That He gives us, He bestows unto us His perfect righteousness so that when God the Father looks at you, He sees the perfection of Jesus if you're a believer. So it's not just that God just simply forgives or just wipes us slate clean, but He gives us His perfect righteousness. And this is something that Luther came to realize for the first time in his life. If you read the rest of Romans chapter 1, you will see Paul will show how the gospel is for people who is, their, their sin might be more outward, maybe the sins of the culture, maybe like the Greeks back then or someone like Augustine. But then in Romans chapter 2, Paul, Paul changed his course a little bit and he he shows how the gospel is also for people whose sin is maybe more inward, maybe pride, arrogance, self-righteousness, maybe someone like the Jews of that day, maybe someone like Martin Luther. Now, we see, if you read the next couple sections of, of, of Romans, you'll see how the gospel is for the rebellious and how the gospel is for the religious. So you've heard about Augustine who liked to party and Luther who liked to pray. And God used the truths in this book to set both men free. He set Augustine free from being a slave to sin, and he sets Luther free from hating God, and both men experience breakthrough. And so what about us? I think God wants us to experience something similar. I think the, the temptation for us if you've been in the church for a long time, is that you start to see being a Christian as just simply believing and behaving. And that's really all it is. But God wants joyful obedience. God wants relationship. God wants vitality. And so for myself, for you, God wants breakthrough for us. That His grace can break in. His mercy can break in and touch your heart in such a way that maybe it's never been touched before. That He wants that for you. That's what it means to be a Christ follower. To let the words of Scripture penetrate your heart and soul in such a way that we experience and understand fully in our entire person what His grace and, grace and mercy looks like and what it's for. So Paul says here that he's not ashamed 
of the gospel. And there are two ways that we can be ashamed of the gospel. There's a personal way, and there's a public way. We can be ashamed personally, because the gospel tells us that we have a need that we can't meet. We can be ashamed publicly, because we don't want to lose standing out there in the world. But something miraculous happens in our hearts when we realize that we have been divinely rescued. We become someone who's not ashamed of the gospel. So you may not know the story of, of Harrison O'Keefe. He is from Nigeria. And in 2013, he was serving as a cook on a tugboat up off the coast of Nigeria, about 20 miles out to sea. And one night in heavy seas, the boat capsizes, and it sinks 100 feet to the bottom of the ocean. And it takes three days for a search and recovery team to find the boat and develop a plan to go recover the bodies. Now, when the divers go down, they begin searching each room of this boat, and as they enter into a room, one diver sees a hand in the murky waters, and as he reaches out to grab the hand, the hand grabs back. This man is miraculously still alive. How is that possible? Well, the boat had capsized, and an air bubble had formed in this one room, and he happened to find it, and he survives inside of an air bubble for 60 hours at the bottom of the ocean with no food, no water. So I want you to hear his description of this story. The lights went off and they capsided. And I was there trying to, like, and the blizzard fell on my head and tear my head. And I was there struggling on how to be able to open the door. And I was right in the water when I have access to nothing, right down inside the water. I thought of my family, thought of my, my mom, my brothers, my wife. I have access to know them, no way to get to them. And I was right in the water, and I know I'm going to die. But the only thing that put my hope and trust in and my confidence in is God. I don't know if it's up to three days because I was thinking it's just going to be the evening. I was with the people, pray, 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 pray. When I prayed for some time, I stopped. And I said, God, let that will be done as it is in heaven because I have tried my best. And I have called you, and you have never feed me before. And you will never feed me. And so what my life is. As I say that, to me, if death comes, the miracles. If death did not come, I know it's going to rescue me. So as I was there like that, I kept calm. And I was bored because I was not afraid anymore because I know it's life and death. The, the road, the, the, the line is already drawn. It won't come very far. rescue is, it still doesn't compare to the rescue that God offers us. Because we were just on the brink of death, or the doorstep of death, or almost dead in our sins. We were, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, we were completely dead in our sins. And He rescues us. That is the gospel message. Now you might think after this terrifying experience that this man Harrison would never go near the ocean again, but do you know what he does now? He got his scuba certification. So he can do for others what was done for him. Because 
when we've been rescued, we want to see others rescued. And that's his story. That's also the story of Paul. So why is Paul not ashamed or afraid of spreading the gospel? Because he's been rescued, and he wants to see others rescued. There was a passion. There was this eagerness in him. And may that same passion be in us as well. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the words we looked at this morning. We thank you for how they have transformed so many people throughout history. How they have set the world on fire for your gospel. How they have transformed the hearts and minds of men and women all over this world. And many of them have have gone and not been ashamed. God, help us to not be ashamed. Us and not be ashamed personally, where we try to pay you back or do things in our efforts. Help us not to be ashamed publicly, fearing that we'll lose standing with people in our world and our culture. God, make us wise as we share it, but help us to not be ashamed. Thank you.